1: This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the only major UK airport owned solely for community benefit. The airport is the major employer in the region, supporting more than 27,000 jobs, and its contribution to local charities are 20 times more per passenger than any other UK airports. To find out more about the UK's most socially impactful airport, visit lutonrising.org.uk.
2: Are you podcasting what we're podcasting? It's time for How to Win an Election. Strike up the band!
3: I'm Peter Mandelson,
4: and I'm a fighter, not a quitter. I'm Daniel Finkelstein. I've probably got greater expertise in losing elections than in winning them.
1: I'm Polly McKenzie, and I've spent so much time writing policy briefings that most people don't read that people call me Policy McKenzie.
2: Yeah, here we are again then. Episode two of How to Win an Election. The first one obviously went okay. Uh, Thanks to all of you posted uh, comments and things I've been in touch. It's been nice. Some of you have been nice, Matt. I noticed that you
4: changed Polly's introduction. Yes. But you're proposing... Throughout the entire series, to
2: repeat the fact that I kept losing elections. Well, no? Because as we'll become at the beginning clearer, of my own podcast, the one we, that I'm actually on, we thought it would be a, a fluid situation, and because today we're going to focus on policy, we thought we'd use Policy McKenzie. <laughs> uh,
1: I have lost elections too, Danny. Don't worry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think I've fluid. lost
1: elections worse and harder than you.
2: <laughs> oh, that's a good situation. competition.
3: Nobody is better at losing the elections than the Labour Party. Now there we are. No competition.
2: Clip all that up. That's next week sorted. <laughs> well, you've sort of introduced yourselves again. Uh, Daniel Finkelstein, Peter Maldeson, oh, well, let's do your proper introductions, Tory box, Daniel Finkelstein, uh, New Labour Mastermind, Peter Madison, and Lib Dems, Policy McKenzie. <laughs> How are you, Polly? Uh,
1: I'm very well. This must be I'm luck. not actually a member of the Lib Dems, just... No, I, I don't. want to deceive anyone. No. I did work for the Lib Dems for uh, just time. over a decade, no. so, you know, no shame in that, but I... I also helped to found a different political party, so you and know you're much better they now. frown on
2: that. Yeah, exactly right. Very good, very good. Well, if you do, thank you for all of your your messages about the first episode. If you want to get in touch with your questions and comments and complaints, uh, you can email us how to win at thetimes.co.uk, and uh, we'll do some of your questions uh, a bit later. on. Now, we, obviously, this is like your your World Cup Christmas come early, isn't it? King's Speech Day, Policy Mackenzie, you must be absolutely you know, all your Christmas has come at once.
1: Uh, no, I think we need to discuss the elephant in the room, which is everyone's just calling it the King's Speech as if that's normal. This is the Queen's Speech, and we just renamed it, and now all it does is make me think about Colin Firth. Yeah. And and once you're thinking about Colin Firth, it's hard to have other rational thoughts on, <laughs> You know? <laughs> well, so I, I'm struggling a bit. It's cognitive dissonance.
2: We're very pleased that Danny and Peter are here, because obviously, really, you should be in your we ermine. We should be here at all. You should be, you should be in your ermine. We're on playing the hooky. Grounds. Yes. Playing you hooky go. And Matt. of course, to go to the...
4: Uh, king's or queen's speech, you have to obtain ermine, which you either can can rent for the day, costing about £180. But,
2: from like, is that a special there's mosque? There's a sort you of raffle
4: <laughs> you know, among the lords, so there's a number of these ermine that you can have uh, given to you if you are lucky enough to win the ballot, which I did one year. And then one year, when I'd written about it in the Times, one of our readers sent me... His ermine, because he was a hereditary peer who no longer needed it himself. <laughs> so I, wa- I noticed the people who bought the ermine, which cost about ten thousand pounds. It was very expensive. They looked sort of absolutely perfect. Mine was slightly more uh, used, and I then had to. I then realised I had to return it to this guy once I'd used it, and I put it in a plastic bag and went to. Uh, Mails boxes, etc. Uh, and they were very puzzled by it and they picked it up and they went, ooh, a Santa costume.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, but we're, pleased, we're pleased you're both here because obviously both, uh, both as uh, members of the House of Lords, you could be in the Lords to listen to the King, but you're here listening to me instead. So I feel very... I've, I've, that's, that's a high compliment you could um, So the King's speech happens at the beginning of every parliamentary year. Obviously, the significance of this one is the last one we expect before a general election. So it is much about what the Tories, the message they want to try and land in the run-up to a general election. Um, how big a deal is it, do you think, Polly? Can a King's speech like this, laying out their sort of legislative plans, really shift the dial?
1: I think it can if you are planning a, a sort of big legislative fight about it. Like one of my earliest memories in Parliament was the sort of all-night sittings in the run-up to 2005 general election about. Terrorism, And there was basically no chance of the Labour Party getting those legislative provisions through. But what they could do is have a big fight that helped dominate the news agenda. Um, And it's clear that part of what they're aiming to do here is create difficulties, oppositions, bear traps, so that you can have through the next however many months it's going to be lots of those kind of ideally knife-edge votes maybe even a, a late night or overnight sitting in the House of Lords, uh, to help create kind of tension and conflict. They want the Labour Party to be either forced to oppose stuff that sounds nice or uh, equally to uh, vote, a, uh, vote in favour of stuff that is sort of, a get a bit more right-wing and kind of create a sort of factionalism, divide, kind of tribal warfare within the Labour Party that distracts their attention from fighting the election. Gosh.
3: I mean, that's the sort of political king speech that, the government are designing one that will lay traps for the Labour Party and make a sort of squirm in embarrassment and fill us with tension and internal party rows, which will go completely unnoticed by the rest of the country. <laughs> <laughs> they will not care at all. I mean, this Bricking speech is the product of a team, I think, around uh, Rishi Sunak who spend far, far too much time in Westminster. What they think is important and exciting in Westminster is of no interest or relevance to the rest of the country. I suspect There may be, you know, I mean, the King's speech is obviously going to be, you know, full of lots of small things, some of which may be popular if they're ever noticed by the public few of which are going to affect people's lives none of which are going to turn the dial uh, about the future of our country and i, I just think that people who around soon who get very excited about this sort of political trap playing for labor just a, sort of operating within a bubble
2: I yeah don't, I don't I mean, don't know within
3: a bubble well, but they,
4: i don't know particularly whether they have got excited about it but i think all three <laughs> of us are probably i mean i don't know yeah. but the, all three of us have done the same thing which is try to explain to the press what the theme of the Queen's speeches or the monarchs? Oh, speech. they never let me talk to journalists, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> but it's no it's to, so me. to do, Did you, <laughs> you
1: were special, special. <laughs> to
4: develop it for the people who are going to do the briefing of the press. And the problem with with all these um, legislative programs is they're all brokered. So all of the departments want a bit of the uh, speech in order to produce their own reform in their own area. And the job then of the uh, you know of, the, of Downing Street combined with the leader of the house is to divide up this these ideas and allocate them to some people to give them enough time. Because the crucial thing in legislation is always just getting enough time. And if we assume that they're going to have a full legislative session, they need to have time to finish certain things. So, first of all, it doesn't really have a theme as a result of that. It's, it's much more negotiated than that.
2: The theme's usually grafted on at the end of it. <laughs> they but, of, and, so they, they literally sit and looking at and go well there's quite a lot of crime in this is this a big yeah, crime king exactly speech? so it's trying to it's
4: trying to sort of then you know they they've got to try and link it to the party conference theme. so they're going to say this shows thinking of 30 years but in fact most of this work was done before they thought up the party conference scheme so mu- much of this i think description of what the, the of the theme of the king speech is mostly confected um, but but the lead and i also agree with Peter and Polly, that, that in so far as the public is concerned, these kind of disputes in Westminster, which they definitely will try and provoke, you're right, Polly, will not matter that much. What does matter is what do these pieces of legislation do? The problem with this one is it's, it's a bit late for that. So let's, for example, take a football regulator. They're going to introduce a f- football regulator. By the time a football regulator is appointed and the football regulator begins to regulate football, whether you think it's a good or a bad idea... Which is the only time when anyone will notice what the government has done, or it'll impact people's lives. By that point, the, this government probably won't be in power anymore. So I don't think so this comes to labor football. Is regulator. that in, yeah? Is that impact? And thing? Danny, you're a
3: big football geek. Why is the football regulator going to apply to men's football and not women's?
4: I hear what, the patriarchy. Is
1: Peter
3: is it? Is it the patriarchy? Is it the, was
4: just a review. It was just based on a review of of the of the financial sustainability of the men's game uh, and it would it well, what about the women's game well yeah. it, it's just not ha- it doesn't ha- hasn't raised the same sustainability but it's uh, blossoming problems. it's different yes but it's women's football it, is it, coming alive all over the place well, maybe someone will try and amend the uh, the bill. They're oh, going to have to a round that would it. be a good so round. You could go to the, the okay. Lords, Peter, and because no, obviously these football issues are very important to you. No, <laughs> you <could go laughs> very
1: to <laughs> close to my heart. I used to be
4: the
3: uh, honorary president of Hartlepool United Football Club, and uh, when I stood down from my constituency, they wanted me to continue. I did so for a few years, and then I thought, no, I must give this up.
2: Was it the football match in favour of my elected as the mayor?
3: Yes, thank you very yeah. much, Matt. That is Angus, so I we, Angus uh, the monkey yes it was angus the hanging monkey (laughs) and i on the day he was a night he was elected i went to him i said it looks as if you're going to be elected just take that ridiculous bloody costume oh thank you pdq i'm not having you make an even greater fool of our town than (laughs) you've already succeeded in doing i was apoplectic
2: Right, we'll, we'll, we'll get him in for next week. Um, <laughs> now, the, the weird thing about the the, the most eye-catching, talking about the you know the extent that anyone notices, the most eye-catching policy from the government uh, isn't even in the King's speech. It was sort of rather than putting forward this idea of uh, of clamping down on tents and homeless people making a lifestyle choice to live in tents. Um, call me cynical, Polly, but it feels to me like this is probably something she wanted in the King's speech. Didn't get it. Somebody, unfortunately, then briefed the papers about it, which forced her to tweet
1: about it. What a mistake.
2: And and it's reinforced her reputation as being, you know, more hard-line than even this government. But actually, it was interesting how the cabinet lined up to say they didn't agree with her.
1: Yeah, I mean, as Danny says, there is this kind of... I don't know if you imagine a sort of head teacher in front of a whole primary school full of children, desperately with their hands up with their own little like bit of legislation that they want. And some of that is something worthy about eggs that they've been trying to get a legislative slot for for 50 years. And some of it is, I just really want to poke poor people with sticks and I, I need a law to be able to do it. And, and so there will always be disappointed people. And it's then one of those challenges that for every minister they have a combination of agendas one is to secure the future of their political party but then also to think about their positioning mm. and if we assume that Rishi Sunak is going to lose the next election and that therefore there will be a contest for the next leader of course some ministers and it seems like Sula Braverman is, is one of them will be starting to think about how do i make my how do i differentiate myself it always strikes me that she's trying to get fired and it's this sort of slightly depressing game of chicken yeah. whereby she says to Stuff that's kind of, yeah. I don't know, disloyal and an off-message, and yet nothing ever happens to
4: her. One of the fascinating things about, that I found when I got into the House of Lords, I don't know that you agree with this, Peter, but is the, the disconnect between the legislative programme and the political debate that's going on at that time. Often what's in Parliament isn't has gone from the news ages ago and doesn't come back until it doesn't work in two or three years' uh, time. And I do remember during the middle of the Brexit debate I had to leave a Zoom call that I was on in order to vote in an important division. And the, the Americans that I was talking to said they understood why I was leaving because, you know, there was all this big Brexit debate going on in the papers that had even reached the United States. (laughs) In fact, I was going to vote on whether certain members of the House of Lords should be allowed under the Ivory Bill to keep their ivory chess sets. (laughs) um, And so the, the... the, the thing that's interesting about Suella um intervention is that she's trying to sort of shoehorn in politics um, and a sort of political point into a legislative programme that may be about actually some quite practical things. Um, and, you know, my own view is that what, re- fortunately what really shifts politics in the end is how those things actually impact on people's lives. In other words, I think that whether what the government does actually improves or does not improve life for homeless people or people who care about homelessness is going to be much more important to their, the outcome of the next election than anything Suella
2: Brabman raises in the newspaper. Do you think Polly's right? Is she trying to get the sack? is, it, is Rishi Sunak right to tolerate her?
4: I, I think what she's, I would think what she's doing is trying to push as far as she possibly can, probably without getting the sack. So what I think she wants to do is to... um, Because I think being pushed right outside would probably not be the right strategy for her. What she wants to be is the outrider. And what she wants to be is the right-wing candidate... At the next uh, leadership election. Yeah. She's, so, th- so what she's in fact, this is not un- it's not aimed at Rishi Sunak, who probably wouldn't be there in these circumstances. It's more aimed at Kemi Badenoch and James Cleverly. Yeah. It's trying to be the right wing candidate against whoever is it, the candidate. It's a the sort mainstream of right
3: wing one upmanship that she's going on for, going in for. I mean, she's basically everything that Rishi Sunak isn't. I mean, you know, he's a sort of granular, detailed, narrow vision, head down, uh, 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 prime minister. She's a born disruptor. And what she wants to do is to sort of follow in the trail of Johnson and Truss as the person capable of upending everything in sight, disrupting the established order, tirading against the elite. And that's what she'll find any issue. On which she can grandstand but in order that, to do that
1: in any issue that involves vulnerable vulnerable people, of course, like well, that's, well she likes
3: stigmatizing people, she likes to going after minorities, anyone who can't defend themselves, she'll be after them,
1: yeah, exactly, so <laughs> she's on a crusade against warmth but for what do you do people. I mean
2: you must have sat around the cabinet table occasionally with people with attention seekers, peter, um what would be your advice <laughs> to the Prime Minister in that situation, do you tolerate her? Do you slap her down? Do you suck her?
3: No, he should have. Uh, he should not have appointed her in the first place. He was <laughs> but we only, are where we are. Peter. He
2: was only trying to sort of... <laughs> he was sort of
3: playing the factions of the Conservative Party. And then when he was stronger and had greater authority, he should have got rid of her earlier in the year. He, he would have known what was coming. She, he would have known what game she was playing. And he had the chance earlier this year to deal with it, and he he ducked it. Yeah. I mean, the, these Queen's speeches and, uh, sitting around the cabinet, they are funny things. I mean, I had a very odd experience in 1997 when uh, Tony Blair had made some glorious grandstanding speech about freedom of information to some progressive organisation that was presenting Freedom of Information awards. And to great roars of applause, he committed the government to introducing the most radical freedom of information, transforming the government and everything else. When he actually got into Number 10 and took advice on this, he discovered it really wasn't such a great idea. He then spent the next sort of few weeks trying to um, sort of weigh up whether he could just ditch the whole thing altogether. He couldn't. He put it into the Queen's speech. Then there was a uh, somebody in the Cabinet Office trying to write a white paper about it. And I kept on receiving sort of notes and messages from Number 10 saying, could I please put in uh, memoranda you know, queering this and challenging that and questioning whether, the, the, you know, the fundamentals of this white paper were a very good idea. I mean, Blair felt he couldn't oppose it himself, so they sort of went round the back and tried to get me, I was minister without portfolio at the time. He later described this fabulous piece of legislation. as uh, He shook his head when he saw uh, what he had done. The, the sheer naivety and imbecility of this legislation tony blair described it uh, uh, as and and uh, regretted it ever since but you know there we are if you want to make grandstanding speeches in opposition you have to live with it when you're quiet, in government right,
2: right? well there we are Well, let, wait in a minute we'll look, i want to have a look a bit more about how you come up with a, a more popular successful election uh winning policy we'll do that next on how to win an election
1: This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
2: Right. Let's try now to work out how you come up with a good policy. Who? Because you've all said you've been advisers, uh, you know, policy officials, ministers. Who? Who's the best person to come up with a policy in the first place, Polly?
1: Well, I mean, it starts with the change you want to see, the problem you want to solve, uh, and you know, if if you haven't got an analysis of uh, how you want the country to change or or whatever it might be. You know, you're the shadow home secretary, uh, the home secretary, how you want the police to change, whatever it might be. Well, y- you get stuck in a very narrow kind of cold sort of uh, political debate about, you know, exactly what sounds good. Uh, the best policies are absolutely grounded in what the problem you want to solve is. And ideally that that problem is, is really grounded in what the public want to see for their country and so uh, it starts with listening I think it starts with engaging and that might be engaging with the public very directly or you know if you're trying to think about the future of the health service properly spending time talking to doctors and nurses and and health service managers you're then still a really long way from a kind of a slogan an election winning thing um but but you have to start with Big complicated stuff, and then slowly, 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 you kind of hone it down and you think about how can you position this, how can you word it in ways that might work for specific audiences or work in a leaflet. But anyway, you just start with the reality. I
3: I agree with Polly, but she's describing, I'm afraid, a rather idealized um, (laughs) (laughs) process of policy making, which in reality is extremely messy and makeshift uh, in my experience. But she's right about you start with the problems of the country. I mean, you want to be elected. Your offer is your policy if you're a political party. You're not a sort of (laughs) flower-arranging society or a golf club. I mean, you're not offering sport or flowers. You're offering policies. So those are very, very fundamental. But you have to take one step back, and it doesn't begin with the shadow ministers or the ministers. It actually starts with the leader. You know the leader of the opposition, the leader of your party, your prime minister, that person sets the direction they create the agenda, they sort of put their arms around the nation and say, "Right, this is what we've got to go do. this is the direction in which we've got to go, and this is what my government uh, if elected is is going to achieve and if you don't have a leader with that sort of vision and that sort of clarity of thinking and that sort of decisiveness, somebody who's able to give people their marching orders and all those others, advisers and officials and people who are then going to supply the content of your policies. If you don't start with that sort of leader, uh, then you're not going to go very far. And we've had some sort of reasonably good leaders in the post-war period, both Labour and Conservative, but in my book, the two standout leaders, the two standout prime ministers, who really had a sense of what they wanted to do, where they wanted to take the country, how they wanted to uh, lead their parties were, of course, first Thatcher, and then Blair. They're the
4: two standout leaders. It's true when you're talking about these big policies, you know, the big decisions about where you're going to go on tax, where you're going to go on spending, what your positionals on defense, that you then have a lot of leadership intervention and even on the big public service, you know, the broad ideas of public service action, but the party also uh, has a lot of policies on things like the, the organisation of a territorial army or um, the, part, the parties will have a position on cheese regulation. Um, and and the, lots of those are created in Parliament by shadow spokesmen in response to what the other party is doing, trying to create yeah. clear distinctions, often in wrongly um You're and then trying one of, to
3: create dividing lines aren't you yeah, between yourselves and your exactly I and
4: mean, one of the things that people think often is that the, the, the thing that's worst about politicians is they don't do what they say they're going to do I, my alternative theory is that that's one of the, the the one of the things that's worst about politicians is they do do uh, what they say they're going to do and <laughs> often they've developed this policy quite in quite a whimsical way so that's not true of the big policy issues but there's a huge number of things that count as policy. Uh, now, then when they get into government, oppositions get into government, it's true that some of those things fall away. Uh, and the civil service also says, well, actually, Minister, that doesn't work or that doesn't take into account a lot of reality because opposition often doesn't know the full reality. But but still, you know, po- oppositions do create policy that ultimately can can... Existing government and takes years. I mean, for example, on on health, it took Tony Blair ages to develop away from the policy of Frank Dobson had pursued and that had been pursued in opposition uh, all the way he through. He didn't to... really
3: get to that until his second term. Exactly, I mean, yeah. it's extraordinary. But you know, I uh, I recall what I think Harold Macmillan said, and if he didn't, he
2: does. He'll get now. he'll get in touch in the usual. Uh, he'll get in the usual way. He said, calm.
3: So cool reflection unties every knot and that is true and and if one sort of principle of policy making in my view is that the prime minister is pivotal the second principle of policy making in my book uh, is is you have to have a really good clear process quality people because that principle of rubbish in, rubbish out applies in <laughs> spades to policies. You know, if you're presiding over a sort of policy-making governmental environment in which there's just chaos the entire time, nobody knows what they're doing, the whole thing is sort of people being pushed from pillar to post and mixed messages coming in and out of number 10, no effective leadership, you are going to have rubbish in and well, the policies that come out are going to be equally Rubbish. So you need that clarity, that calm, that sort of decisiveness, and then you need proper follow-up. I mean, a mo- lot of these policies are just announceables.
2: Uh, can, can, I <laughs> the, can I
4: ask about what what you think about this? My view is lots of times people criticise the leaders of the opposition for not having very many policies. And I'm actually really in favour of them, not having very many policies, because I think, you know, I was the director of, of, of policy of the Conservative Party. I think creating policy is very difficult in opposition. The number of people in your entire policy unit is probably smaller than the number of people in charge of fabric regulation in government. So you... you fabric do...
1: regulation is super important, by the way.
4: <laughs> exactly. Just... So... Yeah. Uh, but it, but so's the whole of policy, and you have fewer. <laughs> uh, so I just wonder what your feeling is about, you know, the, uh, Polly and Peter, about the number of policies that ought to be created, whether it should
2: be small... So actually, I mean, even more so the third party, policy. would your life have been easier in 2010 going into coalition if you hadn't had such a massive manifesto, shopping list of, of policies? It
1: was a really long manifesto. Um, so I think it would have been easier if we had had operationally, some sort of plan for what we would do in government. And and that's what's odd, I think, especially as, uh, especially for a third party, but actually huge periods in opposition. You're developing policy and it's, policy to win votes not policy to run the country and you have to remember that you want to win the election in order to run the country you don't run the country in order to win elections and and that's what's sometimes missing the the quality of your message the quality of your kind of policy specifics that you're in the leaflets on the doorstep it it, it, kind of talked about in question time that should be really limited but you Absolutely, have to have a detailed plan for what you want to accomplish because it's difficult, well, it's complicated, it takes a lot of follow-up, pol- and otherwise you don't figure it out for five yeah. years. Policies
3: make, poli- pol- policy See, you just call me policy. Poli- you Polic- policy you know? See, people do it. <laughs> policy is making very very good <laughs> points, <policy. laughs> <laughs> and that is that policy has to perform so many Ps at, at three different levels. It has to perform on the doorstep. It's got to be short, sharp, staccato, and easily grasped. And yeah, yeah, thumbs up to that second level at which policy has to perform is that it's got to be easily understood and then disseminated by the media, who, who we know are, broadly speaking, a lazy bunch of people who don't <laughs> like detail and don't drill down very far, but they've got to be able to grasp the essentials so of what's I feel what like I stand up for my They've, got to, do, figure, they've right. got to do the essential explaining and propagation. And then thirdly and not least, it has to be capable of implementation of, of in government. I mean, if you take um, a policy goal that Keir Starmer has set out, which he did very effectively at the party conference, big house building, build, 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 grow, grow, grow. Now, fine, you can set a number of target, a number of houses you want to build in the country. But everyone knows that below the surface of that policy are two vital sort of pillars or springboards uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, from which those policies are going to jump and become a success. One is a very radical reform of the planning system. How hard is that going to be and how long is that going to take uh, before you've built your first house? And secondly, you need skilled labour You need people, a workforce with skills who are going to build these houses and we don't have enough of them in this country. So we don't have a planning system, we don't have a skilled labour force and yet we've got this massive goal, uh, house building uh, targets. And that's what I mean by you know being capable
4: of implementation it wasn't a practice. policy it wasn't it was an aspiration and, a, and an awful lot of the it's a big, good one though Danny. i, yes, of I course strongly it, I support no, no, it. No, it is it is a good one and it's a political differentiator because of the direction a tory party has taken but it's not a policy i think i think you know that there are policies that are that do you do have to sell on the doorstep but there are lots of policies that never rise to that level that never the, that never even maybe even make it into the manifesto let's I wonder whether in 2010 one of the most impactful conservative policies was even mentioned, which was the, 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 the teaching of reading through phonics. Um, that's been one of the most important things and most successful things this government has done. Pro- was a policy that Nick Gibb, had developed for himself. I'm not sure. The shadow schools minister. I'm sorry. Was the shadow schools just in case? there's anybody in the country then, doesn't know who Nick <laughs> exactly? Gives. Just in case. And then and became schools minister. But I'm just, I'm just giving it as an example. I mean, actually, the fact that the, the name wasn't well known either is, is exactly what I mean. Which is, uh, said so he, trying to save the situation. Um, and yeah. the. Uh, <laughs> The, the truth is that, that, that lots and lots of policy is created um, that, that is really, really important, but does actually not really play a role in yeah, it how actually, to win an it's like about
2: running the country. Before, before, um, before we move on, we'll do some questions that uh, listeners have sent in. I just want to know, what, what's the worst policy that you've been involved in, each of you? Just as a sort of, sort of, the, the sort of therapy group that we could all, all share and learn. In
4: my case, it was the tax guarantee. The Conservative Party gave a number. decided it was going to give a number of guarantees. I think following. I was working for William Hague at the time. Following the example that had been set by Newt Gingrich in 1994, had been very successful. People. The idea was people didn't believe politicians, so you should issue a guarantee. That was misconceived itself because it wouldn't address the issue of whether people believe politicians. But the the, the shadow Treasury team added into that list that we should we should. Have a tax guarantee related to the proportion of GDP um, that was taken in tax, and that it would gu- we would guarantee that it would go down, which you absolutely cannot do and ultimately <laughs> ultimately Michael Portillo becomes uh, treasury uh, shadow minister and in, insisted as a condition of accepting the role that that, that policy be dropped which was very embarrassing for leadership you can imagine if you issue a guarantee and then say it doesn't hold this
3: policy as <laughs> hard to implement it as it is to describe
4: Danny? <laughs> <laughs> well i mean so it didn't even have that exactly it didn't even have the advantage of being you know a simple a simple yeah, policy tax to understand. guarantee
1: sounds like i'm guaranteed, guaranteed. i'm going to charge More you some tax. taxes. So, for me, it's the pensions triple lock, which really, I think, starts with uh, Thatcher breaking the link between earnings and pensions, and the Lib Dems, well, their predecessors, sort of started to campaign against that. And then there was a moment in, uh, where Gordon Brown, as Chancellor... Uh, inflation was really low, so the pension went up by like eight pence a week or something. And the Lib Dems did a big campaign about that, and and so constantly had felt that one of their key doorstep things was being able to promise pensioners more money. Ironically, due to the fact that like hardly any pensioners really ever voted Lib Dems, but you know nevertheless, in de- desperate to get the, that older vote, and and things kept changing, and then the Conservative promised, Conservative Party promised to bring back the. Earnings link. And so the Lib Dems were like, one upmanship, let's have a triple lock whereby basically pension <laughs> goes up whatever so regardless of earnings inflation or just two and a half percent for the yeah. hell of it guarantee that pensions will go up and up and up and then of course we accidentally got into government <laughs> uh, the conservatives <laughs> uh, were like oh all right then let's do that um and ended yeah. up as government policy and yeah. they can't seem to get off it and, and it's who's going to
3: have the courage billions now, yeah.
1: and billions well uh, somebody who thinks that young people are more important than old people i don't or, know who that is or
3: just as important But I'm afraid the policy I'm I'm sort of most sheepish about is indeed uh, HS2. Okay. Because although the coalition government is credited uh, with this uh, high-speed train project, this sort of fiasco, uh, and indeed, you know, it, it was their concept. I mean, they wanted to build the fastest train in Europe. To be the fastest train, it had to move in a direct line at great speed from London to Birmingham to Manchester and further north. It then, therefore, had to plough through extraordinary sort of hills and small mountains in the Chilterns and elsewhere at vast, vast expense. Because, of course, it all had to be tunneled uh, through all those uh, through all that earth. And uh, having decided. Uh, are on this sort of wrong uh, wrong wrong principle wrong uh, wrong route wrong plan, they then completely lost track of uh, control of the management and the costs but of course, the thing originated in the cabinet of which I was a member uh, in two thousand and nine and we were coming out of the global financial crisis and we wanted to build back better and we wanted to show what Britain was capable of doing and we alighted on this big trophy project. It really was a triumph of politics over economics and it has of course resulted in a half-built White elephant. (laughs)
4: Uh, Have you noticed the skill of? Just want you to understand the skill of Peter Mandelson. How we are in the presence of greatness. (laughs) He's just managed to define his greatest mistake as being the fault of the Tories.
1: (laughs) uh, No, but he missed out the the It was
4: fantastic. But actually, it was all David Cameron's Cameron's fault.
1: Because David Cameron was the one who promised a high-speed rail. It was part of his green Cameroniness. He went to visit high-speed railways. It, it, he said, why Brown, is the Labour Party Gordon expanding Brown airports? Gordon Brown did not
3: want David Cameron to have these trophy projects. And so when David and George came back, I think from Japan... And trumpeted this great sort of discovery of high speed rail. He said, "Right, if they're having it, we got to have it." Too. <laughs> it's
4: genius! It's genius. Makes I'm sense. just I pointing mean, out. You know, I'm afraid it goes back even
3: further. This Tory fault. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, you know... God, if only they hadn't been invented in the first yeah. place, we wouldn't be in the state we're in.
4: Peel's. I think it's the fault of Peel, or maybe Disraeli. <laughs> <But,
2: laughs> no, further, back we, further can, back. we can. We can. We can. We could just uh, uh, thank ourselves again. We've got through another conversation like that, and we haven't mentioned tuition fees, but so that's that's that's. Really
1: good. Well, that's because tuition fees, in (laughs) fact, had no impact on the widening participation agenda. More and more people carried on going to university, more and more people from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds. What changed was post-2015 when the Conservatives decided to abolish maintenance grants because it's actually living costs during university that keep people uh, away from university, not the idea of paying a bit back once you're successful, which actually most people are on board with
2: well we'll have to leave that there i'm sure we will return at some point to the wisdom of sign i think the thing on signing things contracts with the nation and all that there's, yeah, def- there's definitely somebody pursuing that in the future on uh, on how to win an election Right, let's do some uh, questions and uh, correspondence from our, our lovely, lovely listeners. Times reader Jay Doherty got in touch. Commenting online, how to win an election is a blatant rip-off of the title of a piece by Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan and Harry Seacomb. In keeping with the justified derision over Rachel Reeves' plagiarism, would Mr Chawley like to have admit to precisely the same offence? And I, I insisted that I'd... I'd never heard of this (laughs) record from 1964 uh, for Peter Sellers, Spike Rennigan and Harry Seacombe. Danny then got involved uh, and said, I genuinely don't think I've seen a sillier comment under a piece. (laughs) I haven't heard their record, but I think it would have to be really funny to compete with your post. Are you being serious (laughs) or is this actually a wind-up? Well, I've got you all a present. Uh, So we can find out just how uh, funny, silly or otherwise... Here is from 1964. Uh, you've each got a copy. You can unwrap it. I've wrapped it in the. No, I can't wrap it because on the
4: back of it, it contains the li- the uh, story of Chelsea's victory from last yeah, night. i so to say want- we're
2: not talking <laughs> football, Peter. <laughs> will won't Shut up! When we start talking about. Awesome. Unwrap it. Uh, so it is a copy of the 1964 record "How to Win an Election." Oh my god! By god. Peter Sutter wow. Spike Milligan, and Harry Secombe. Is it funny? Do you Le- think that I own wow. a record? Player? We've got a little clip so we can judge for ourselves. Good
1: evening. we here.
2: What kind of government does this country want, and how do we go about getting it?
3: Well, it was to answer questions like these that my colleague and I recently organized a nationwide Gallup poll. And the results from this showed that from a
2: cross-section of the public who were questioned, 1% said yes, 2% said no, 48% didn't know, and 49% didn't want to know.
3: Then here I say it.
2: So, I think we can agree that the comment underneath the article was probably funny this way. I've listened to quite a lot of it. It's quite chewy, sort of, late goons. It does sound a bit, actually, like our podcast, unfortunately. Rather disconcerting. (laughs) (laughs) Me just reading out random polling numbers that nobody understands. So, yeah, you can take that home and enjoy that. Thank you very much for the Uh, present. Very good. Uh, Then we've had a question from Peter. Uh, Peter says, a question for the three amigos. Does door-to-door campaigning make a difference in an election in this day and age? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. I
3: have never run or participated in a by-election where I haven't really gleaned uh, the nuance of how people are thinking and what their attitudes to the candidates are and what they're likely to do without going on a doorstep and talk, looking people in the eye and talking to them directly. I know you can't do that with every voter, not in every election, but it's absolutely vital in my view. That's what I call the ground wall. Very important.
1: But it i mean it depends on the constituency. You're talking about that as a sort of input to understand where people are, and I totally agree. When it comes to does it make a difference to individual constituency results, probably two-thirds of the constituencies, the answer is no, not really. But you absolutely with high quality canvassing in order Mm. to identify where your voters and your potential voters are and and with a really good kind of get out the vote campaign on the day you can absolutely make a a difference at the margin in in a seat and and we know that there are seats that end up decided by 20 30 or even a few hundred votes and you can Uh, definitely change it that level
4: at the margin was the critical phrase in that whole (laughs) sentence i mean you can make a difference at the margin and i don't think it's a very good focus group indeed i used to always be annoyed by politicians who say what they heard on the Doorstep <laughs> rather than using okay. rather than using the polling and the, and focus, the focus groups because they're, they're just right. much more scientific. But it's a big subject and there is scientific work on it, so we can.
2: Talk oh we can come back to that. Time. We'll come back. Yeah. To that. The
3: reason it's a big subject, Matt, how voters think and talk to people and answer questions is not the same always as they act
2: in the polling. Very league. good. Very good. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. But you can send your questions to How to Win an Election at the Times dot uh, my thanks to Danny Finkelstein, Pony McKenzie and Peter Mandelson. They'll be back uh, next week taking another look at how to win an election.